welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. All right, all right. Hey, everybody. Uh, guess what? I'm back. I'm back into civilization, back into uh, normal everyday life. I'm in my office. It's kind of kind of weird. There's no uh, ants or spiders crawling on me. My fingernails look super clean. And uh, I took a shower this morning and soaked in the hot tub. So it's definitely uh, quite different than what's been happening for the last four weeks in my world, that's for sure. Um, it's been an awesome, awesome hunting year so far. I was really excited to be able to get out. Started in Alberta and had a few tags there. Uh, really close encounters on bulls, close encounters on muleys. Uh, was able to get it done on a coyote, which is always a super bonus, and also shot a really cool velvet whitetail. And that was all up there with uh, my little buddy. Taylor Lowen up at Red Willow Outfitters. Uh, he was my camera guy this year, so it was pretty cool. My faithful sidekick, Dusty, broke his foot on his new dirt bike, uh, Knucklehead. So he had to not come with me on my trip for the first time in many, many years. So Taylor stepped in, and we did our best given uh, about eight days of rain. It was fairly miserable, but uh, we did the best we could, and then from there, let's see, from there, forgot where I went, oh, from there I went out to South Dakota, uh, went out to South Dakota chasing some uh, antelope and was able to get a really cool buck, super heavy horned buck, mainly hunting water holes, uh, sitting all day hunting water holes and did a little bit of scouting went out and did some videography of some whitetails and also some elk uh, while I was out that way just trying to get some cool pictures but got a really cool antelope and kind of in between all my hunts I got to come home and see the family and catch up but um, then I would head back out uh, then ended up going back to Montana had a deer tag out there good for whitetails or mule deer and also uh, had an elk tag and um, hey it's been awesome we've got mule deer we've got antelope we've got elk we've got whitetails and a coyote uh, had a little run in with a pack of wolves again nothing like last year um, but it was a very very adventurous um well, probably about three weeks because I, I always try to come home in between. Sharon's birthday is right in the middle of September. So I uh, drove back from Montana for Sharon's birthday and we had a really nice birthday, all that good stuff. Um, and I guess in the middle of all that, the Olympics were going on, the Paralympics were going on, World Cups have been going on. Uh, so Shout out to everybody that meddled there. It's been really awesome watching 
Um, definitely a shout out to my good buddy Seppi in South Africa, uh, winning a silver medal at the World Cup final. That's really cool, uh, especially given that he's you know full time archery shop owner, advocate to to archery and bow hunting, does so much for the sport. Just a great, great friend and uh, ultimate respect for you, Seppi. Um, had the pleasure of working with Seppi years ago, um, helping helping him with some, um, just giving him some knowledge on arrow build and arrow tuning specific to X10s and Pro Tours, um, different ways to cut, cutting off the front, cutting off the back, all that good stuff, and uh, really taught him all the tricks on how to perfectly tune an X10. And uh, not too long after that, the dude just went on fire, shot awesome, and uh, then took had some had his kids, had his little girls, took some time off, and uh, for some reason or another made a decision to go back and try a few World Cups this year. And dude's dude ends up making it in the final and ends up winning a silver medal and uh, was able to have his wife Mavis down there with him, which was really, really cool to see. And uh, congrats, buddy. Appreciate uh, you coming out and showing us your skills again. He's got really, really solid form. Definitely uh, one of the very few archers that I that I watch and, and don't really uh, disagree with anything that he's doing. He's He's got impeccable form and just a very, very great person for the archery community. So uh, congrats again, Seppi. Uh, his real name is Septimus, which is pretty solid. I mean, I would much rather have the name Septimus than John. I, it's a badass name. So uh, if you're looking for him on Facebook, uh, you can go on my page. I kind of made a little shout out to him. Then you can see him there and then follow him. He's pretty cool. Does some awesome stuff in South Africa. But uh, other than that, we did a live stream on my last day out west. Um, and the live stream went pretty good. We kind of were, I was hogging a guy's hot spot, so I wasn't able to just keep talking and keep answering questions. But what's cool about the live streams is obviously I can teach on the fly. Definitely don't have to, I, de- I definitely don't have to rehearse anything when it comes to live stuff for archery. Uh, just give me a question. I can roll with it. And once we were done, I went ahead and jotted down these questions that were left over that I wasn't able to get to, which are going to be questions that I kind of continually hit on the podcast here whenever I do a live stream, which is going to become much more frequent. Um, we're going to, I'm going to answer whatever questions I can during the live stream. Then we're going to, I'm going to follow up here the next day or so and get into these questions to kind of fill all those gaps with the podcast. So the first question I got here is from Dustin Hall. Um, This is, again, these first questions are all leftovers from the live stream, um, which my live streams are always going to be on the Knock On TV Facebook page. And um, regardless of how many times I tell people it's Knock On without the K on the front, it's N-O-C-K, no K. Um, so yeah, look for knock on TV and that's on Facebook 
And then if you like it, then you'll get notifications of when I'm going to go live. I like to give you a little heads up and let you know, but sometimes when I'm out in the middle of nowhere and some guy walks by with a phone and I say, hey, can I jack your uh, hotspot? And he says, yeah, then I jack it and we go live in like four minutes. So you got to be ready. You got to have those notifications on, even though they're super annoying if you have more than five friends. Uh, but first question here is from Dustin Hall, and he says, "Been wanting to get back, in, or been wanting to get into elk hunting, and have never done it. What would be the best way to go about it?" So, with elk hunting, man, it's probably it's 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 within my top two. I love rutting whitetails. I mean, there's three weeks during the whitetail season that's just crazy. But there's also three weeks of elk season that's crazy too. And uh, shooting a crazy big bull is definitely awesome. But all of us people east of the Mississippi uh, sometimes don't really know where to start, don't really know where to go. You can always start, um, honestly, you can start with an outfitter. Um, I think... I think for an Eastern person who's never done it or who's never been out in the wilderness like that, you might almost be better off saving up and finding a good outfitter, going with an outfitter and getting a feel for how you do it and also getting a feel for you know, being out in the woods and having to cook for yourself and all the little tricks and stuff that you have to do to be a backcountry hunter. And then once you have done it, Find a buddy system, maybe find another guy or two that wants to go out and start doing it with you. Um, I actually, this time, I went out to a place that one of my friends told me about, um, which is which was out north of Bozeman, Montana. Um, it was with the family um, that run an operation called Anchor P, P as in Paul, Outfitters. Um, they're in White Sulphur Springs. And they have a pretty unique um, setup there. They've got a lot of um, property, family property, that um, some of it borders national forest. I was actually hunting right on the edge of public land. Um, but they are alfalfa farmers. So there's a ton of elk that go down to these alfalfa pivots in the darkness and as soon as it starts to get daylight, they come back up to the high country. Um, so these hunts can be anywhere from difficult to, um, I guess, medium when it comes to uh, how, how much condition you're going to have to be in. Um, some of the hunters that were there, um, there was, I think, four or five of us that were there. Um, some of the hunters weren't really into serious hiking and going up into the high country. I personally was. Um, I was really all about hunting throughout the day, being in the high country. I stayed at about 8,400 feet and hiked that each day up and down. Um, but some of the people that wanted a shorter hunt um, and just really wanted to see higher numbers of elk, kind of tried to intercept elk as they were coming from those alfalfa fields. They were getting in little draws and fingers as those elk were coming up and through. Um, 
and that'll give you kind of a an easier start to elk hunting. Another option as well is Alberta is a really unique place for elk hunting. Um, I've been to Alberta several times. I guess I've probably been going there right at 10 years now, I believe. And what I like about Alberta is um, a lot of the ground that you're hunting is actually public hunting, but it's not super treacherous. Um, You can certainly get down into some of those river systems and it's extremely steep, Um, but it's not just it's not steep for miles and miles and miles. You can cover a lot of ground and, you know, honestly, if you've never elk hunted, it's good to have another person with you that knows how to call and also someone that can call for you and pull the bulls past you rather than you trying to call from a position. Because what happens a lot is those elk, because they're so big, they're used to being able to see other elk. So they kind of have this comfort zone. Normally it's right at about 80 or 90 yards where once they get within 80 or 90 yards of that call, they stop and they're really trying to locate where that elk that's talking to them is. So the best thing for a caller to do is to continue to go away from you and you know get a few hundred yards or 100 to 150 yards behind you so that as that bull is coming to their call he actually pulls and goes past you so that you're able to get your shot that's really the best way to do it so those are two um where i go in alberta is actually called red willow outfitters um they're a great place um and you know A lot of these places, even if you go with an outfitter, what's nice about it is, especially if you're limited on time, just being able to go somewhere where they're already set up with a camp, where you're not having to spend multiple days setting up your camp. Um, You can always use their areas like kind of a base camp. And then, you know, if you want to go higher or go to a new spot and spend a night out in the timber, uh, a lot of times you have that as the option. Um, but they pretty much have everything set up to go. And if you're elk hunting for the first time, it's probably nice to have someone with you that can help get your elk out. Um, that would be another huge benefit for someone who doesn't know how to like field dress and properly take apart, uh, an elk or animal that size in the field and be able to pack it out correctly and cleanly, um, It would be good to have someone with you that knows how. But those are two good spots, uh, two good outfitters. You can find them on the internet, Um, both places that I've gone. um, This Anchor P is a new one that I've gone. I'll certainly go back. Um, What was nice about it is it was a general tag. So you were able to actually get that tag um, in the general draw. It's not like a special bull unit, which normally I do put in for a special bull unit over on the east side of the state, but this year I did not draw that tag, so I wanted to try to go where I could have a general spot. So um, Anchor P here in the States, his name is Lon. Um, His wife's name is Julie, so you can contact him through the website. And um, you can also make a request if you're a knock on podcast listener 
you can make a request if you tell them that you heard it on the, you know, if you're a knock on person, then you can try to jump on during the time where I'm going to be there too. Cause I'll certainly go back. So yeah, if you just tell them, Hey, I want to be on the hunt when Dudley's there, um, then they'll have my times. So try that out. Hope it works. Dustin, appreciate you tuning in, dude. Um, next question here is from Jacob. I think it's Dre here. But anyway, um, you're saying, would you ever come to Northeast Ohio to hunt whitetails? Well, Ohio's awesome for whitetails, man. I just don't have a spot. I've been there a few times. Went there years ago um, with one of my buddies, Rich. Um, But other than that, I haven't really had invites to Northeast Ohio or anywhere else. But I know you got big big bucks, and I know a lot of my friends go there. Ryan Bronco's going there. He's all jacked up. Florida guy getting to go up and shoot a big whitetail and hopefully get frostbite on his toes for the first time. Um, but no, I haven't had an invite, but I certainly would go for the right opportunity. Uh, next question here is from Zach Watkins. He's saying, Zach's asking, how do you set up your stabilizer weight on your hunting bow? So for my stabilizers, once again, I always try to keep it simple. Um, I like, so when I choose the length of my stabilizer for my hunting bow, um, the only reason I shoot the length that I do is because I pretty much have a stabilizer that is at a length to where when I set my bow straight down towards the ground, you know, if I'm holding the string and I set my bow down, I want my stabilizer at a length to where it keeps my sight off the mud and crud or rocks. Um, so my stabilizer is normally a 10 inch rod with, you know, an inch and a half or a two inch uh, rubber doinker and a slight end weight. Um, I really like to keep my setups simple. I don't like, you know, especially for this last hunt. Um, when I was in Alberta, I did about 86 miles is what I covered um, on my Fitbit for elk. And, well, it wasn't my Fitbit. It was my UA. Um, I forget what it's called. But it was my health box band, actually. But, uh, you know, when you're covering that kind of ground, and then also when I'm covering, like, for example, here in Montana, um, I hunted six days. Like I said, I was climbing um, pretty good elevation each day. So having um, a bow that's weighted down with a ton of stabilizer weight just is not my preference. So I try to keep it simple, keep it light. Um, I have a single fuse carbon rod out the front with, I actually have the older style um, rubber suppressor that Fuse made. It's the tapered one. I have that on the front, and then I have um, a decent size weight. I don't ever really pay attention to that. I kind of just screw stuff on, see how it shoots, and sees, see how it holds. Like I said, I like to make sure that when I set my bow down, it keeps my sight out of the mud. Um, if you shoot too short of a stabilizer when you set it down, if your sight's sticking out there, Um, For example, and this is actually a question I know that I have coming up, um, which I'll probably get to here in a few minutes, but um, 
some of the bow sites that are further out away from the bow, people are shooting them that way for hunting now. Um, if I shot mine that way, I would probably have a longer stabilizer as well, just because I don't like to set my bow down and end up picking it up and there's a bunch of mud and crap jammed into my scope housing. So I shoot them simple. I don't really shoot much for offset brackets, although I do like an offset bracket if you have a quiver, if you're always shooting with a quiver. I personally shoot a detachable quiver. So a lot of times, um, well, anytime it's outside of 40 or 50 yards, I would prefer to take my quiver off to make a shot. Um, but I do have a detachable quiver. If I'm ever whitetail hunting or tree stand hunting, I always take my quiver off when I'm in my tree. So I just don't need to have a lot of counterweight um, and a lot of stuff going on. I don't like to have things when I'm walking and climbing. I don't have. To, I don't like to have to worry about how I'm holding my bow or holding my bow in a certain position because I have side rods and kicker rods and everything like that. I just really like a simple, clean setup. If you want to add weight to your bow. Um, to steady it, I like to add weight closer to the center of mass, so I'm more likely to put weights on the riser rather than out on my stabilizers. And that's just me personally. Um, let's see, next question here is Jeremy Passanalt, I believe. He says, I'm going moose hunting in a couple weeks. Would you feel confident? using a rage on a moose absolutely um i shot a rage hypodermic i'm a big i'm a huge fan of rage hypodermics if you have if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't watched the live stream that i just did um i think it was two days ago so if you go to the knock on tv facebook page um it would have been the live stream from September 25th. Go on there and look at the broadhead that I have in that stream. We talked about um, what type of broadheads I like to use. I'm a I'm just a huge believer right now of Rage Hypodermics. I did some ballistic testing with it this summer. Um, was really, really impressed with the ballistic tests. And then... I can tell you with this elk, my shot actually, he was downhill from me. Um, he was downhill and he was also the way he was kind of turning to leave. I shot through him down, came out and actually hit the offside arm um, right above the elbow. And if any of you have elk hunted, you know that an elk's arm bone is dang near well, it's bigger around than my wrist. It is massive. Um, that arm is huge. And um, whether or not he had it, all of his weight on it at the time or what, I'm not sure. I just know that the rage went through, hit the offside arm. It centered the arm bone, and it actually traveled straight down. the. It followed the inside of the arm bone. It broke it into about three to four pieces, and uh, when I fleshed out that front arm bone or front arm, the Rage Hypodermic Plus P was actually down straight inside the center of the arm, like in the bone marrow, and the broadhead 
was completely intact. The blades were completely intact. One was slightly bent. Um, the tip was slightly rolled over, but I can tell you that was a pass through with total devastation to, um, and a front arm that's dang near the size of like a Yeti cup. So I would have no problem using it on moose. I use it on elk. I actually, um, I'll admit I made a really crappy hit on a moose um, during last season of the show. I shot a moose up in British Columbia and um, the moose was quartered pretty hard and there was also a little bit of right to left wind so when I shot I didn't compensate enough um, for the wind and I hit him he was quartering very hard but I didn't hit him through the spot you would want to I actually went through more of the back quarter and that arrow absolutely buried right to the knock in the rear quarter and that moose only went about 80 yards and was done. Um, great penetration, tons of cutting and devastation. So I'm super confident if you take a hypodermic. You know, you'll definitely want to make sure anytime you're shooting a mechanical head that you're shooting enough weight. But what I like about the hypodermic design is that the blades slide backwards and anytime they have a rear deployment, it takes less to open them up than if they have to jackknife backwards. Um, you know, there's a lot of good heads out there, and I know a lot of the broadheads. Um, I know people that do really well with even the old Rockets or the Grim Reapers or, um, you know, G5, I believe. I've got some friends that still shoot those uh, mechanicals. But I can just tell you that when it comes to a blade that's just sharp as crap, I almost cut my finger completely off. I still have a scar on my index finger on my left hand. Um, I cut, I was actually um, holding my quiver in my left hand. We were driving on a road um, up in BC. We were driving on a real rough, rough road road on a logging road and we were sitting there my quiver with all my arrows was up at the front of the um truck up in the dash and we the truck just started bouncing and the quiver kind of flew up at me and i grabbed it and when i grabbed it i actually grabbed the hood of the quiver and then we actually bumped down and something hit the end of the the truck hit the end of the arrows and it pushed like the all the arrows like kind of down my hand and evidently I had when I had grabbed it out of the air I had grabbed my finger right around the base of one of those rages and when we hit and my hand slid down that rage that was actually in a closed position cut my index finger all the way down to the bone there was maybe about three-eighths of an inch uh, keeping my finger together and it was it was amazing how bad it cut me without much effort at all so i'm a i'm a big believer they fly awesome um, they shoot so good they have minimal drag minimal drift the blades are sharp 
and the blades are also easy to replace and the collar system I think is really really nice so that's my thoughts uh, don't want to give you you know I don't want to sit here and be too much of a seller on them I can just tell you that I can really shoot anything I want I can shoot any broadhead I want I'm sure of it uh, well there might be a broadhead company out there that doesn't like me I'm not sure but I know that I could call up most broadhead companies and say, I want to shoot your broadhead, and they'd let me. Um, and I buy a ton of them every year. I always go to a Shields at the beginning of the year. I actually did this with Joe Rogan at the beginning of the year. I went and bought, um, actually, I think I got them from Lancaster, but I bought one of every pack in the catalog, and then I just shot them in the backyard. And once again, I ended up settling with... Uh, a couple different heads but on this trip I had one muzzy trocar in my quiver which flies almost the same as my rage it hits about one inch lower um, I had a trocar in my quiver and I had three rage hypodermic plus peas I went with the plus p because again it was a bigger animal so it's a one and a half inch cut the blade angle is not as flat it's sloped more so you get that better penetration um, was really really happy with it um, I'm going to go right to Tommy Cap's question because he says I'm going on a moose hunt next Friday. Any last minute words of advice? So the one thing that I'll tell you about moose hunting, and I've done a lot of it, is you really, really need to be patient and realize that a lot of bulls, probably more bulls than not, are going to come in in stealth mode. Um, the bull that I shot that I just talked about was that way. And the biggest bull that I've shot, which is the skulls actually right here behind me in my office, um, was that way as well. They don't always grunt and come in posturing and doing the really cool thing that you see from everybody that gets to go up and hunt in the Yukon and get to experience those massive bulls. Um, they're much more likely to just come in quiet, no different than a lot of bull elk do. A lot of the elk that, that we had encounters with just came in quiet, uh, and you have to be able to see them first. The other thing is, um, so when you're calling, you just need to, you need to really set up. You need to let things quiet down a little bit. You need to let your caller call, and you need to stay still and here's probably the best tip I can give you. When it comes to moose, moose, they, they can tolerate the types of sounds of another moose moving through bush. So they can tolerate a stick breaking. They can tolerate uh, leaves rustling. They can tolerate water or like your feet going, you know, like suction cupping through mud, all that they can tolerate because they know that they're hearing another moose and moose are huge, so they make noise when they move through. Anything that is natural to the timber, they are going to be able to tolerate. Stick break, leaves, mud, water dripping, water, um, you know, even a limb breaking or falling, you know, pine cone crunching, any of that. As soon as you do one thing that's foreign, their ears are so good. So I'm talking, you 
you unclip an arrow out of a quiver, that metallic sound or plastic sound, snapping a knock on the string, flipping your arrow and touching the riser, any type of Velcro, zipping up your zipper, any of that, and it's done. It's over. So once you you need to get into your spot, get situated, get totally ready, get set up, let things quiet down, and then let your guide call and do your calling. And while they're calling, you really need to avoid doing anything that is going to make any type of synthetic or man-made sound. Because if you do, it's over. Once you call, they know exactly where you're standing. And it's almost unreal how moose can pinpoint your exact location from miles away. They practically know right exactly where you're standing. And if their ears are totally focused right to that spot and they're listening the entire time they're coming, as soon as you do one thing like decide to zip up your jacket or you know unzip your jacket to pull your rangefinder out or anything like that, your hunt is probably over. So whatever you do, make sure you're totally ready and you're not going to do any of those foreign sounds um, once you start calling. And that'll really help you out. Uh, the other thing is, you know, you got to be patient. That bull that I shot, we had been calling for over an hour and all of a sudden, you know, he just appeared at the other side of the swamp and just came in so quiet it's hard to believe that something that big can walk through a full swamp with all that deadfall and water and sticks and you can barely hear them coming so that's what i would do you know get set up do your calling and just have it in the back of your mind that the moose is going to come in quiet that way you're not just sitting there getting discouraged and getting fidgety because you don't hear something grunt back at you right away but this next week should be a prime time it's one of my favorite weeks to go uh, for sure so i think you'll have a good opportunity and it's also a very good um it's a very good moon phase as well um let's see uh kyle chup is asking what camera does your cameraman use to film with? So most of the the videos that I have or most of the TV that I do, um, I use several different cameras. For my hunts, the majority of the time, um, I use a Canon XA20. Um, you can also, I also use a Canon G30 a lot with um, with a better microphone attached to it. The XA20 allows you to use XLR mics or a, um, you can use a wireless mic with the XLR and you can run two channels. The G30, the only way you can attach is with the hot shoe on top so you can have one microphone. Um, but those cameras are really good. They film at uh, 60 frames a second. Um, so they've got you know a great frame rate and they're full HD, and they're easy to pack and easy to carry. So the majority of my hunts, that's what I personally use, and they're also really good in low light. Um, and they're you know two thousand bucks or less, depending on which model you go with. 
they're also way easier for me to teach people that aren't camera people how to use them. That's important for me because I'm not a high budget place where I have guys that are running cameras that are total tech camera gurus. The majority of the time I'm doing something like what I did in Alberta where I go up there and I'm give my guide the camera and say, okay, here's what you need to do to film. Um, or I'm filming myself, you know, off a tripod or a camera arm. And when I'm doing that, it's much easier for me to pack a small camera and, a, you know, a tripod or a camera arm in my backpack. I can't really tote any of the big ones. I used to have big cameras, but I've just found that for me personally, the difference in size just doesn't outweigh the ability to get better footage from simplicity. Um, I also use DSLRs for filming things that I can have full control over. So like my knocked and ready to rock segments or my dead center segments or field recon segments. Anything where I'm in a fixed position, I'll use a DSLR just because I really like the look of it and I have the option to use a lot of different lenses depending on how much I want you to be focusing on. So if I'm doing like a product specific or form related segment, I'm not really wanting you to see all of the scenery. I'm wanting you to focus on what I'm doing right in front of you. So I can run a lens with like a 2.8 um, like a 2.8 lens and I'll run like a low f-stop so that the depth of field is really shallow so I'm in focus and everything behind me is not and that way you're really focused on me showing you technique or me showing you a product um, with the regular video camera you don't really have that much control over certain things like that so it's kind of nice um, however with the DSLR you know, you do have to manually run your focus a lot of times. Some of the newer cameras you can use an autofocus, but it's not always knowing exactly what you want to grab. So the focus is much, much trickier. And even though a DSLR has a, arguably a better image, a better look, if it's something like a whitetail where the whitetail is coming through the timber, there's just no way that I could be manually running a focus on that type of a lens and try to move the camera and capture the footage. So I really like that camera that I'm talking about. Most of my staffers have the Canon G30. Um, they're using a DM100 mic on the top of it, which is a Canon microphone, a DM100. Um, then we use a Manfrotto um, tripod. Normally, we have the uh, Bogan 701 fluid head, and we also want run the Manfrotto thumb remote. Uh, those are pretty much the setups that we run, and you know you can get that whole thing, all that stuff. Um, a lot of times for under 2500 bucks, a full setup, and you're pretty much ready to roll. So that's what you need if you're wanting to get into it. I would say minimally get you a G30. Um, they're about 1200 bucks, I think. A better microphone is always a must, and um, a longer life battery also. This could be super positive. 
but you can get all that stuff. You can get those three things normally for under fifteen hundred bucks. And I buy all mine at B and H uh, camera, B and H photo. I got their app on my phone. They're out in New York or New Jersey, something like that. Um, not a sponsor. Just I use them, and I always buy the drops and spills warranty. I've used it many times. It doesn't matter for two years. You can do anything you want to the camera and they'll uh, fix it or replace it. It's worth a couple hundred bucks to have it because I've used it almost on every camera I've got. Um, Next question here is from Kelly Foss and he says, when shooting indoor spots, what are the advantages or disadvantages of shooting a blade rest over a drop away rest? So a launcher, a launcher blade rest, um, which right now I'm actually playing around with a new target bow, and I'm using um, the AAE Freak Show rest. Um, what I like about a blade style rest is just the repeatability and simplicity of it. Um, I'm going to play around with. I'm actually going to play around with. A fallaway style rest with a launcher blade on it just to see but I just really like launchers because they're so repetitive and so simple um, all you have to do is make sure that you have the right stiffness of blade to go with the weight arrow that you're using um, a lot of times a ten thousandths blade is a pretty standard blade for an indoor arrow and then really having a blade that you can comfortably pull your arrow back or let your arrow down without it falling off the rest. Um, and then just making sure that you have, you know, which is usually pretty easy, especially on an indoor setup because you're shooting a bigger arrow diameter, is making sure you have fletching clearance so that as an arrow goes over that launcher blade, you've got good clearance. Uh, but a lot of the the benefits to the launcher is just that it does the same thing every time. It's just a piece of steel that's holding your arrow and it's flexible. So if you have the right angle, um, which I really like a blade angle at about 37 degrees. Um, if you have the right blade angle and the right stiffness on your blade, it's forgiving. And even if you have a slight contact as that arrow's passing through, um, you're going to have, you know, perfect flight. And they're just super repetitive. Most target archers out there are shooting a blade style rest. I would say the high majority. Um, they're also really nice for cradling very small diameter arrows. Um, and depending on depending on the setup, some archers um, have their bow set to where when that arrow kind of comes through that arrow rest the back end of the arrow is actually off the launcher and the fletchings are never even contacting that launcher some people like it to ride all the way through to where you know a lot of times you can see those marks on your arrow where it's actually going all the way down through um, the entire launch cycle of the arrow which mine do that um, and Hoyt, the way Hoyt designs most of their target cams, they actually have a knock travel that slowly rises as you draw the bow back so that as you fire, that knock travel is naturally pushing that arrow down onto the arrow rest and forcing that arrow to ride the rest the entire launch cycle 
so that you continually ride that that lizard tongue or that launcher blade all the way until the arrow passes which in my opinion is another reason why i find arrows that don't have super strong helicals um, to actually shoot a little bit better for me and this also is true when it comes to indoor arrows or my small diameter outdoor arrows and and what i think is happening is when i shoot with a slight offset of about one to one and a half degrees I leave room in between those veins for your launcher to be able to go between there without contact. People that shoot a very drastic offset or helical on their fletchings, a lot of times when you look at their arrow rest on their launcher, you'll notice that there's always one stripe or a contact mark um, on one side of their launcher. And that's because that arrow, if it's riding that, launcher blade the entire length of the arrow shaft it just doesn't physically have the room for the launcher to pass through the fletchings without having some sort of contact and you know this is why sometimes people have a tear when they're shooting through paper to where no what no matter what they do with their arrow rest they continually have the exact same tear and that's because they're having contact with their fletching and you can prevent that by shooting slightly less offset especially depending on how big your shaft diameter is on the arrow that you're shooting um, for me i've always found that one to one and a half degrees is enough to get you good rotation um, and good spin but also be able to still allow you to have proper clearance when shooting through now if you do want to shoot a a lot of helical or a lot of offset then you're a prime candidate to try a fall away rest for target shooting as well um, there's nothing wrong with the fall away rest i've considered using them many times um, but i'm just a little bit old school in my thinking i've traveled well, I've traveled over a million miles, probably close to a million and a quarter miles now on an airplane with a bow and arrow. And um, I've just continually found and continually see with other archers, the more complex they make their setups, the more likely it is for something to go wrong or for them to have to make adjustments to something once they get somewhere I'm just a huge advocate of keep it simple, stupid. Just keep it simple, man. A launcher blade is so easy to replace. If it breaks, you can slide another one in, put the screw on, you're ready to go. You know, if you end up having something come undone with a fallaway rest, it's a lot more complicated. If I could shoot a launcher style rest for hunting and have it actually as durable as a follow-away rest, for example, if I went through the woods that I've been going, that I went through uh, in Alberta with a lizard tongue launcher-style rest, that thing would have been ripped off after the first mile. Um, but if it was much more durable than that, I would probably shoot that style of blade out there because it is just super repetitive and they're super easy. And a lot of times. Um, you know, with the fall away, the length of your cord, um, 
the timing of when that when that rest comes up or when that rest goes down that really starts to change how that bow tunes which is why i like a limb driven type system on a fall away rest i really like anything that connects the limb and pulls the rest down using the limb rather than being connected to the cable that's just my personal opinion but uh, hopefully that helps you out man appreciate the question kelly um Let's see. Okay, Casey Waltrip is asking, Hey, Dud, congrats on your harvest. I see a lot of your bow setups with speed knocks on them. Could you go over the benefits of them? So um, Casey's talking about on your bowstring, and a lot of bows come standard with this now. There's actually weights that are clamped around your string, and a lot of times they'll put like a, a shrink tubing around that weight. And they're normally towards the end um, of your string up towards the cams. And so speed knocks kind of serve two purposes. One, they they can help increase speed. Um, by And this is done because when you change where weight is on your string, you're also slightly changing inertia on that string as well. So there becomes a point with strings where having that that extra inertia will help speed that string up. Um, But there's also a point of once you add too much, it will actually slow that string down because it's the cams are having too much. I'm not going to say they're having trouble, but they can't get that much mass moving fast enough for it to be a benefit. So with speed knocks, there's a point where you can add little knocks on your strings towards the, towards where it is on your cam. For me, about four to five inches um, away from the axle is preferable. Depending on your cam size, you may or may not be able to do that. But you know, I know with Hoyt, you'll see that there's several speed knocks on their strings when, with a factory string. And what they've done is they've already tested where those knocks need to be placed on that string to get the most speed out of that bow. Um, the thing with mass is adding mass to your string, there's a point where it will add speed. Then there, once you've overtaken that threshold, it'll start to decrease speed. Um, but sometimes as you add speed, you'll also, depending on if you've gone too far with how much weight you've added, you can also start to add vibration or string oscillation as well. So there's a really fine line there. And what you can do if you have a string that doesn't have any speed knocks on there, um, what I would do is I would measure from where your cam touches your string um, measure down, you know, two to three inches so that it's even on both and clamp a brass knock around your serving. Make sure you're clamping it on your serving and not just on bare string. Um, shoot it through the chronograph. You'll get a speed. Then you can add another knock to each side. Shoot it through the chronograph. You'll, st- as you add those knocks, you'll see your speed start to change. Sometimes, um, you'll, maybe only add one or two and then all of a sudden that speed will start to drop once that speed starts to drop you know that you've gone too far you need to remove those last um the last two set two knocks that you put on and you're pretty much at the sweet spot um on some bows you may add up to six or seven knocks 
on each side before that starts to change. The one thing that I'll tell you is adding weight to the string, either above it or beneath it, can also slightly change how your knock travel happens. So you need to start out by making sure you're adding equally on both sides. Otherwise, you can start to change how your knock travel is or what that path of the arrow do, or path of the string does as it travels forward. Because if you have more weight on one side or you know more weight on say the top of the string than you do on the bottom, if that cam is having to take a little bit longer to to get that weight moving, then you can slightly change your knock travel. So you can also, if you have a bow that always has a high tear or a bow that always is getting a low tear, you can also slightly tweak your tunes um, by adding knocks either to the top or just to the bottom of your string. You'll start to, to change your knock travel as well. So speed knocks have benefits um, but they also have a fine line of where, whether they're an advantage or start to become a disadvantage because sometimes even though you get your speed up you also start to make your string start to have more oscillation or more buzz simply because you have more weight in your string itself um, you know and this is a pretty simple concept um, back when I was at Matthews like the original max cam that was um, that you know was the first perimeter weighted cam system it had weight in the cam and that kind of worked the same way the speed got better um, from the original cams that didn't have weights and it helped reduce vibration in the system because mainly because of that that inertia that weight so it's pretty much simple physics um but hopefully that helps you out thanks for the question casey uh, next question here is from lyndon mason it says john you're always talking about the moon when it's still up with the morning sunrises um why do deer change their habits around the moon so in the latest copy of peterson's bow hunting i gave my predictions for best times to hunt for whitetail um and the moon in my opinion has more effect on everything to do with hunting really than weather fronts or anything else i i really like to pay attention to the moon this past week we were just coming off the full moon. I knew it would be a great time for elk, and it would also be a great time for elk to still be very active late in the morning. And this 100% was true. Um, and actually, the day that I shot my bull, the moon was still high in the sky at 11 in the morning and it was starting to fall on the horizon at about one or two o'clock in the afternoon and i told my guide i really want to be out um and make sure that we're in the timber and out there by one in the morning and believe it or not or one one in the afternoon believe it or not 
uh, we were out there and he was totally blown away that there was elk already bugling several bulls bugling and talking quite heavily at one in the afternoon on the exact time that I said um, I just really like the moon it tells you a lot I think that with elk uh, the rut gets going the hardest on after that full the first full moon of September so some years the full moon happens earlier in September and by the 14th or 15th of September the bulls are really running strong but then sometimes like this year particularly particularly the moon was full only last week so a lot of people were not seeing much rut activity all the way up until here during the last few days and that's because that moon was still coming into the full position i just find that with whitetails with elk you know when you know that the the rut time frame is happening i think the rut will be heaviest immediately following the full moon of that that particular period so the full moon has now happened the full moon's going down i think most of those cows are totally in estrus right now and it's a great time to be elk hunting right now um, and it's also a very good week right now to be moose hunting as well um, this full moon as it happens for next month it's going to happen at the end of october towards the end of october so here in the midwest i really foresee some great bucks um, going down in the evenings just prior to the to that first full moon i think that some of the bigger bucks of the year are going to fall um, there around the the 23rd to 25th of october and then immediately following that full moon as it cycles down um, i really feel like that first week towards the end of the first week of november um, we're going to have some of the harder rutting as compared to in years past. Um, our harder rutting was more towards the middle of the month here, at least where I'm at. So pay attention to the moon. I feel like animals rise and fall with the moon. So anytime that moon hits the horizon and starts to go up to about 20 to 25 degrees, the animals will be on their feet. And then as it falls, same thing from that moon being 25 degrees to the horizon going down to the horizon they'll move again sometimes it's in the middle of the day sometimes it's right before dark sometimes it's two hours before dark but the majority of the time the moon has way more effect on my hunting than anything else that i pay attention to um Okay, we've got uh, Michael Elliott here is asking, what's your process when placing your pin on the target? So when my shot sequence happens, um, and actually, you know, this bull as it happened, you know, I really like to go through my shot sequence and make sure that I'm totally ready and settled and have my pin waiting in my shot lane. For this bull, I actually crawled up on him in or I didn't crawl, but I snuck up on him uh, in his wallow. He was actually down in his wallow, uh, rolling all around. I could hear him bugling, and I could hear him splashing and crashing. So I knew that I could slip in. Plus, I had really good fog and rain 
to kind of cover my movement as well. Um, but when that bull stood up, I knew that he'd have to go to the right or to the left of that tree. So, um, you know, I pretty much went through my shot sequence, which is, you know, paying attention to my stance, my grip, raising my bow, making sure my front shoulder's down and forward, drawing that bow back, anchoring, always coming to my anchor first, then adjusting my head so that the tip of my nose is on the string and I've perfectly centered my peep and the housing of my sight. From there, I always... I try to get in the habit of being able to go through a shot process to where when I bring my nose to the string and I'm looking through my peep, I'm almost always already on the target. I don't really like to have to go through a draw cycle to where I have to move my pin a long way to get on the target. I guess preferably I come from the bottom up on a target if I'm not on one rather than coming down from the top onto the target but honestly like when I shoot indoor spots and I'm shooting indoor leagues uh, more times than not I'm drawing my bow back and as soon as I bring my eye and center my peep and my housing my pin is already within the gold on the spot that I'm looking at and that I think that comes from practice and just doing it a lot Um, but once I get my pin to that target from there depending on the release that I'm using um, I'll move my thumb to the trigger and once I feel my thumb on that trigger from there I'm just focusing past my pins to the exact spot where I'm wanting to hit And I really let my subconscious do the the aiming and I focus on where I'm wanting to hit and and I really start to draw a lot of attention to the movement of that rear elbow and pulling through the bow until that release fires and it goes off. Um, On that live podcast, I talked about something new that's going to be coming out. Um, I'm actually doing a video on it because this is a really cool product. Um, This one's called the Silverback. It's not going to be out for a while, so don't get your hopes up right away. But this is a product that's going to allow you to learn how to train and also how to execute. This is going to be like, this is now, I've made it to where the Noctuit and the Silverback are identical in casings. They're identical in length where the jaw hooks the string fit in the hand and they also hit the same spot when you shoot either one but one is using tension and true movement and teaches you proper form for activation and the other one allows you to have um, a thumb trigger because I know a lot of people really prefer a thumb trigger that's understandable but I think equally important is learning execution So I've pretty much developed this two-piece system now that allows you to execute and practice and then allows you to go right to your tournament or right to your hunt with the same one. With my elk, I shot my elk with the new silverback. So I drew back with my finger on the safety. I let off the safety, kept my pins in the center, and just continued to pull, 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 pull until it went off and I didn't know when it was going to happen. I just knew that I needed to pull and make it happen so 
My process for putting my pins on the target is always anchor first, then adjust your head so you're looking through your peep, get your pin to the target, activate or acquire the trigger, and then continually pull through in one motion until it happens. You don't want to start and stop. You don't want to be pulling, and then your pin moves a little bit, so you stop. And then you get your pin perfectly dead solid again, and then you start moving again. You want to just allow the front pin to float and continue the pulling process. It needs to be fluid. If you start and stop, and start and stop, and start and stop, then what happens is that front shoulder continually starts to, the front shoulder will start to compress, and it'll actually start to weaken and collapse and collapse. Each time you pull and stop, it'll be in one position. As soon as you start to pull again, it'll continually start to come back against the spine. It's a collapse, it's a breakdown in form, and you really don't want it to happen. Once you acquire that target and you're committed to going through your shot, you need to just make it happen. Continue the motion. Um, Last question here is from FP Santos. Hey John, Felix here. Um, It was my pleasure meeting you in Vegas at Impact Archery. Oh, hey man, appreciate you um, sending me a message here. I remember you. Getting ready for indoor season and how you get back in the routine after you've been shooting outdoors. After you've been shooting outdoors. So I guess how do I get back into shooting in the indoor season once it's outdoor season? Um, well, for me, you know, my indoor bows are pretty much always about the same. Uh, you know, I'm going to shoot a, a bigger diameter arrow. I really prefer a 2315 aluminum arrow. Um, but some people prefer a bigger one. I like a 2315. Depending on my bow, a lot of times what I'll have to do is play around with different point weights, ranging from 180 to 220 in my 2315s. And then I'll also do some of the hill tuning methods with my new indoor bows, adjusting the poundage up and down to try to find the sweet spot. And I'll kind of combine that with adjusting my point weight in my arrows to really get something that's working well Um, each year it seems slightly different kind of depending on the cam systems on the bow i think the cam system has much more effect than the actual bow specs uh, when it comes to arrows last few years um, hoyt has used the same cam so my arrows have really been able to stay about the same for their build but for me, I like on indoor, um, I was shooting that max stealth vein. I either shoot a three inch vein or a four inch feather, uh, depending. The last several years, I've been really happy with just a three inch max stealth vein with about one and a half degrees. Um, and I'm shooting a launcher, a 10,000 blade on a launcher. I personally shoot the wider launcher. I don't like to shoot the real small one. Um, just because I don't like, you know, if I'm if I'm slightly moving more or if I get nervous in a shoot off, I don't want to have to worry about my arrow falling off my arrow rest. So I shoot a slightly bigger launcher, a little wider launcher for my indoor arrows. And from there, I personally like a slightly higher magnification. 
Um, and I like a dot size that's slightly bigger than when I'm outdoor. When I'm outdoor, a lot of times I prefer a fiber. When I'm indoors, I prefer a black dot. Um, unless, you know, if I'm outdoors and I'm shooting a field tournament, I like a black dot as well. But if I'm shooting on 3Ds, um, as well as other targets, I'll prefer a fiber for the, for the majority of it. But when I'm indoor, I prefer a black dot. Um, with a small little white dot in the center. A lot of times I'll shoot, um, I'll shoot a six power lens indoor, and you know really that's about it. You know a six power lens, I'll be able to move my peep up just a little bit more indoors, about a sixteenth of an inch higher indoors than outdoors, and that is because I'm shooting at the top of my scale on my sight. Since I'm only shooting 18 meters, my sight is more towards the top than the bottom. So I also like to have my peep up a little bit as well so that my head is in a very comfortable vertical position since I'm not having to shoot multiple distances. But really, that's about it. You know, once I'm indoors, I just focus on it's the best time to just focus on execution. Um, a lot of times I'll start out with, you know, a bigger target not really worry so much about X count. I'll just focus on getting in the rhythm of shooting arrows because, you know, you're a lot of times you're shooting repetition. So I normally start out with like a five spot face, just focus on shooting, keeping them in the white and then worry about, you know, getting my X count um, to a perfect X count as I continue uh, to kind of get back in that habit. But really, Going up in power in my lens, getting back to a black dot instead of a fiber, um, putting a wider launcher blade on there for that, you know, putting a launcher on the rest, a wider blade for the arrow, and then getting back to my 2315s. Uh, that's pretty much it. And that's where it's at. So appreciate everyone. Um, I'm going to keep at the podcast. Don't worry. I've got a few more uh, hunts and stuff like that that I'm going to be doing, but also I know new bows are soon on the way, so you can definitely expect some new bow product reviews coming out. Um, There's going to be some hunting, lots of tips coming. Um, There's a whole bunch of cool stuff in the works, believe me. Um, But I'll uh, get this podcast wrapped up, get it published for all you guys and gals, and then I'm going to get after it and put another one out for you before too long probably today. Keep your fingers crossed. So it could be tomorrow, but uh, thanks everyone. Appreciate it. Knock on. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com. <laughs>